Welcome to the American Citizen Summit, where respected political leaders, grassroots visionaries, and other pioneers are charting the course toward a healthier political culture, which expresses America's founding ideals of liberty, equality, and justice for all. Please share this event with your friends and family, and join us on Facebook at The Shift Network. And now your host, John Steiner, co-founder of Bridge Alliance. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Steiner, and I am delighted to be your host today for our conversation on transpartisanship with some of the leaders in our country in this new and emerging field. I'm very excited to introduce our distinguished guests today, and after each short intro, I'll ask each of you all just to say hello. Michael Osterlink is a social entrepreneur and a leading expert in the field of transpartisan public policy. He is the co-founder of the Liberty Coalition and the American Conservative Defense Alliance. Michael has successfully convened cross-partisan policy initiatives in the areas of transparency, privacy, defense, foreign policy, and national security. He is also the program director and master coach for SEAL FITS, Unbeatable Mind Academy, a world-class leadership and personal development training program created by Navy SEALs. Welcome, Michael. Hello, John. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Amanda Catherine Roman, a bold changemaker, is a transpartisan thought leader and strategist dedicated to fostering healthy, constructive, and cooperative solutions for our communities and our country. Her specialty is empowerment coaching for women, teens, and institutions with a focus on catalyzing the discovery of strengths the integration of personal development and wellness, an increased capacity to learn new skills, and to turn passion into action for lasting impact. She is a founding partner of Living Room Conversations and has played leading roles with Healthy Democracy and the Citizen Campaign. And much appreciation to you, Amanda, for being the co-designer, co-host, and the primary organizer of this American Citizen Summit. Thank you so much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Glad to be here with everyone. Ditto. Chris Gates is a senior fellow at California Forward, a senior advisor to the Council on Foundations, a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and an elected fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. He has extensive cross-sector experience, having worked in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors as well as the world of politics and the field of philanthropy, including executive roles with the Sunlight Foundation, Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement, and the National Civic League. Welcome, Chris. Thanks very much, John. Looking forward to it. James S. Turner, a longtime public interest attorney and part of the first group of Nader's Raiders, is a career consumer health freedom and choice advocate and principal in the firm of Swanken and Turner. Jim wrote The Chemical Feast, the Nader Report on Food Protection at the Food and Drug Administration, which Time Magazine called, or actually said, may well be the most devastating critique of a U.S. government agency ever issued. With Laurie Chickering, Jim is the co-author of Voice of the People, The Transpartisan Imperative in American Life. Welcome, Jim. Thanks a lot, John. Glad to be here. So I'm going to start out this morning with an opening question. 
uh, panelists will have three or four minutes to respond. I then may ask another question or two, and we'll open this up to conversation. Uh, Michael, you'll go first, and then I'll call on each of you to respond. I know you all are familiar with the word transpartisan. I'd love to hear from each of you how you've come to use that word, how you define it, and how this concept of transpartisanship offers new models and maps to help us problem solve in new and innovative ways. Michael, take it away. Thanks, John. Uh, one of the things I like to do is make is to distinguish uh, bipartisan from transpartisan, and that's one of the ways I kind of show how transpartisan is different than what we've had in the, in the past. Um, the way I conceive of it is bipartisan is, is looking at the world very binarily. There's two, there's two sides, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, left and right. Transpartisan recognizes the complexity of human social and political life, the multitude of perspectives and worldviews. The world is not binary. It's very complex. And until we recognize the complexity of human worldviews, cultural forms, social institutions, we actually limit our ability to deal with, solve, and move beyond some of the challenges that we face today. In the transpartisan work that I do, I see three basic purposes for it. Um, one is to humanize a political process. We'll talk about that hopefully later on in this discussion. There are multiple ways we bring people together to do that. It's very important that we humanize a political process so people can have both debates around ideas and dialogues around challenges that we face. Also, transpartisanship allows the creation of space for common ground to be discovered. One of the things that we just we found in our work is that people come to the table, most people come to the table with preconceived notions of how they think the world actually is. Uh, I, I would call it um, um, kind of a, a particular mental model, and they defend that mental model, which is fine. It's kind of human nature. But once you get people in the room together, having conversations, having dialogues, having real debates, there's space that's created, and just in that space you create uh, uh, space for common ground discovery. It's really a discovery process. And what we've found is that there is a lot of areas of common ground on any and all issues. Now, some issues you might have a small amount of common ground, but something that you can build from. On other issues, you have a lot of common ground, but the key is to get people having conversations with one another to discover it. And the third, and for me the most interesting thing is in this transpartisan process, is you, you, know, you humanize the political process, you find common ground, and in that you create space in the body politic for new ideas. And I think that's really important, especially as we transition from the industrial age to the post-industrial or information age. We need to make sure that we have space in, our, in, in the body politic for new ideas, because the new ideas are going to move us forward, allow us to face our challenges more in, from a more integrated perspective, and actually either solve them or you know start dealing with them more effectively. So just quickly, humanize the political process, find common ground, and create space in the body politic for new ideas. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Amanda, over to you. And I think Michael really uh, did a great job of opening us up there, and I think 
the way that I tend to talk about transpartisanship is um, coming at it from a slightly different angle. You know, I think I definitely agree with Michael uh, after having spent 10 years in the D.C. area. The typical uh, status quo position is always to think about how are we going to get differing sides to agree or how is one side going to win and one side going to lose. And so I agree that those are very limiting perspectives to be looking at. And so one of the primary things that I use to talk about transpartisanship with my work is that it's much more about finding alignment rather than agreement. And as Michael pointed out, sometimes that alignment is on a smaller scale or a smaller piece of an issue, and sometimes it's on a much greater scale. So to me, transpartisanship is really about everyone being invited to the table and having a real genuine curiosity about others. And my uh, belief as an individual and I've brought into my work is that there is a real strength and a real wisdom in diversity. And so it's learning how to honor that wisdom in diversity. I personally believe that everyone has a unique strength and everyone is an expert in their own life experience. And that's a lot of the work that we're doing with CTG Associates is activating that in communities around the country. And so when you are transpartisan, it's not about watering down the beliefs that you hold or letting go of those really strongly held values that are very important to you and shape you as an individual. It's about learning how to hold the tension of what you feel deep down in your soul while you're also seeking to hear about others' perspectives and what they hold near and dear to themselves. And similar to Michael, and I know uh, also with Chris and Jim's work, you know, as I've crisscrossed the country, uh, we've seen it time and time again that when people have an opportunity to connect from a place of personal experience, that common ground really starts to pop up all over the place. And many times it's in unexpected areas with unexpected, uh, unexpected relationships even. So to me, it's not about politics. It's about how we live with one another every day. It's about how we care for our neighborhoods and our communities. It's about how we value each other's opinions and experiences. And it's about that common desire that we all hold in our hearts that if we want to find a way to address the challenges we face together, we just want to be felt we just want to feel heard in the process of doing that. So I think that transpartisanship is really about finding a way to feel heard yourself and really having an open mind and an open heart to hearing how others are feeling about these different uh, issues that we are dealing with and challenges we're facing as a country. And when we are able to uh, train ourselves and develop a mental toughness, um, as, as some might say, around that, it opens up um, an infinite number of possibilities and opportunities to come up with those new solutions and those new ideas that Michael so beautifully articulated we really need at this time in our history. Great, Amanda. Thanks so much. Okay, Chris, over to you, please. Well, um, I, I, to, to build on some of the remarks that were made, so first of all, I think it's important to recognize that for some of us, we can actually make some uh, what we think are pretty meaningful distinctions between bipartisanship and nonpartisanship and transpartisanship, but I think it's also important to recognize that, that for, for a lot of people, the, the, those distinctions are 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 pretty specific and and I think um, in some cases hard for people to grasp the difference. But I think that for those of us who work in this space, we do recognize that there is that, as Michael said, the notion that bipartisanship is really about ensuring that there are equal numbers of 
voices or positions on Republican and Democrat or left and right or conservative and progressive, and that that is sort of one style of organizing a conversation, one way of talking about things, and that for some of us who have started using the the word transpartisan, it it really is about um, how do you have a conversation that transcends that that binary left-right DR world, which is a a huge challenge. And, uh, you know, as a a resident of Washington, D.C., I will tell you that um, the town is is really almost defined. I mean, people might as well have... um, uh, D's and R's uh, tattooed on their foreheads because uh, it would save everybody time in deciding who they agreed with and who they disagreed with. Um, and it, it's literally uh, gotten to the point where if if one side proposes something, the other side feels almost duty-bound to oppose it. And so that's why for a lot of us, the, the, the straightforward notion of simply having um, one person from each perspective in the room it isn't going to get us where we feel we need to go. Uh, and so this notion of transpartisanship or, or finding ways that issues can transcend the current partisan divide, I think is very attractive to a lot of us. And I know that um, when I was uh, running PACE, Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement, which was a learning collaborative of foundations who fund in the civic engagement and democracy space, that, that the, the, the concept of transpartisanship was very attractive to them because they were funders who came from different uh, political persuasions and perspectives, but oftentimes found themselves working on very similar issues. Um, and, and so uh, even on a sort of a modern issue like economic inequality, um, you know, some people uh, would make the case that Trump voters and Sanders voters are the same voters. I don't actually think that's the case. I think they are sort of different groups of people. But when you drill down a bit on what motivates both of those tranches of of voters in this country, there is a a shared concern um, that uh, that the American dream has been walled off from them and a shared concern that upward economic mobility is, is no longer an option for everyone in this country. And and trying to approach that issue in a way that brings people together, it's a little hard to fathom how you could do that by simply having equal numbers of D's and R's in a room. And, and what you really have to have is a, a, a conversation that is, that is about shared values. And it's funny because at the community level, um, people don't use the word transpartisan because most communities don't define their issues as being partisan. In fact, most of their political offices and political races are nonpartisan races. And so at the local level, people talk all the time about shared value solutions, bringing people together from different perspectives by identifying what values they share. And I think that there is immense opportunity for us to do that um, at the state and national level as well, if we could find a way to organize a different conversation and bring people together to identify uh, areas of shared concern and identify solutions that could be supported by both sides. So um, uh, I I think it's a a really important conversation and uh, frankly, probably more important than it's ever been uh, when you look at the the distorted state of our political affairs in this country. That's great, Chris. Great great additions. Thank you. Uh, Jim Turner, please. Uh, Thanks, John. Um, I, um, as as of course, 
with an attorney, I end up in almost every situation being a bifurcated structure. Um, there are the plaintiffs and defendants, and that's the way we've kind of structured society. Uh, the transpartisan concept um, is one that people can apply to themselves and describe how they approach things, uh, but also, from my perspective, it's a way of analyzing uh, what goes on in uh, any endeavor, and in this case, let's just take you know, our current political situation. Uh, as an analytical tool, transpartisan can help us understand what appears to be uh, fairly bizarre uh, behavior if you look at it from the traditional um, bifurcated Democrat-Republican uh, lens. Uh, and uh, beginning in describing it, I want to first of all embrace everything that all of the previous speakers have said. Um, my experience, and in, in this is in Washington as well as out of Washington, is that if I look through the transpartisan lens, things that don't make sense otherwise suddenly start making sense. Uh, in this particular uh, presidential campaign, uh, we have a situation where uh, uh, both parties are having internal debates. And uh, those internal debates um, seem to me to fit a kind of transpartisan framework in the way that Lori and I talked about it in uh, Voice of the People, and we continue to talk about it in the various comments that we make. That framework is built around what we call the um, transpartisan matrix, the idea that, in fact, our political process is made up of, uh, at a minimum, four rather than two large impulses. Now, you can take any situation uh, and break it down into the four that I'm going to talk about, um, right down to the grassroots uh, church basement. Uh, we just need to understand that it's, it's coming from what, what we think is the psychology of human behavior. And by the way, I arrived at transpartisan as a word, uh, drawing from the, trans, uh, uh, the transpersonal psychology world and looking at the, the way that a whole, that a whole people interact. Applying the transpartisan idea analytically to our political process currently underway, we would argue that our matrix that we're pushing and arguing for uh, has um, the uh, horizontal uh, uh, line is um, left and right, and the vertical line is order and freedom. And that what we have in a very large number of political debates underway in our culture today, a situation where we have a debate going on between the free right and the order right, and one going on between the free left and the order left, another debate that's going on between the free right and free left on one side, and the order right and order left on the other side. In that framework, uh, you would see, uh, uh, you would see uh, say, Jeb Bush, just use him as an example, Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton as the uh, order right, order left people, and you would see Trump and um, Sanders as the free right and free left people. Um, uh, understand, personalities don't fit neatly into these descriptions, but it gives you a little sense of the impulses that are driving the political process. Um, and if you look carefully at a bunch of issues that have come up uh, in the last few years, you will find uh, something called, you know, and it's reported in the press as strange bedfellow alliances. But you will find uh, uh, certified left and certified right people making a common ground uh, in a debate with, uh, with uh, certified left and uh, certified free and certified, uh, certified free right and certified uh, left right. The, uh, I'm sorry, the certified order right. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of confusing the picture here, but you end up with a free order debate with both left and right on both sides. 
when you start looking, when you add that lens to what's going on politically, a lot of things that are contentious in the bifurcated world become much more understandable, and you can find a way to relate yourself to it. And we believe it all stems from the personal psychology of individuals uh, where they hold on very strongly to their own values, and properly so, and then a space using this matrix of framework is created where they can exact, they can uh, express those uh, strong views while the others uh, from each of the other areas express their strong views. And invariably when we've been able to apply this, something new that none of them had ever thought of emerges as a path toward res resolving whatever issue may be. Thank you, Jim. Um, let me just take a, a minute here and see if any of the panelists want to ask a question of anyone else. Um, before we go forward. Uh, this is Michael. I'd like to ask a question of Jim. Um, Jim, you, you gave, without giving the specific example of a topic, you talked about Jeb, uh, Jeb Bush and Mrs. Clinton on one side as the order folks left and right, and uh, Trump and Sanders as the left-right free folks. Um, and I'm wondering if you, if there are various issues where it flip that you could talk about as well, where Sanders and Trump would be the order folks on a particular issue and free on other issues, and vice versa. Um, they, uh, that that's a, that would be a um, that would be a, um, a personal characteristic or personal psychology situation, and uh, there are cases that where Trump and uh, and Sanders have come up with uh, a much closer positions uh, uh, with each other. Uh, that uh, might or might not be seen as order or free. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not at all sure uh, that I could express uh, how the personalities of individuals will um, will, will move. Uh, but I will point out that 22% of uh, Sanders voters currently are saying they will consider voting for Trump. Um, that's a very interesting um, uh, expression of the situation that we're facing. Um, uh, I think that, that the Bush uh, world and the Clinton world tend to be what we would call the bipartisan world, and bipartisan politics generally uh, is on the order side of the freedom order spectrum because it is the one that maintains that the order side is the one that uh, is dominant in any kind of governance framework. So you'll tend to find people who are incumbents to be leaning in the direction of uh, order and the people who are out of uh, uh, incumbency positions being leaning in the direction of free. And you can even see that in debates, uh, in, in campaign debates across the country. You'll see people, uh, you'll, you'll see conservatives uh, who are out arguing more from a freedom side than conservatives who are in, and the same for, uh, for uh, liberals or uh, Democrats. Um, and when they get elected, they switch, and it really makes their constituents pretty unhappy. Once you're in office, you tend to be much more likely to be order. And uh, so it's quite likely that um, in office, uh, Clinton, uh, 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 Sanders or Trump would be much more order-oriented, and they would probably have people out there from the, the free sides of their respective communities arguing against them. And that's part of what I think you see going on in, um, in, in the state that's unfolded as more and more ability to express the free side is uh, generated because these institutions are, are beginning to uh, fray largely, in my view, under the information revolution. Thank you, Jim. One of the themes I'm hearing, I think almost from each of you, is that the transpartisan lens and vision allows you and your work <clears throat> 
to bring people to the table in a different kind of way than, as you said, Chris, just bringing Sanders voters and Trump voters and an equal number of each to the table. I'd love to hear some stories of how using this transpartisan understanding has allowed you in your work to bring people into new and creative solutions and even visions for the future in a way that the traditional left-right, even at its best, of trying to find compromise uh, is allowing. And uh, Chris, do you want to start with that, given what you said, and then I'd like to go to Amanda and then over to Michael. And Jim, well, uh, yeah, an example for me would have been uh, um, the work that I did in the philanthropic community where what we discovered was that funders on, uh, from a bunch of different perspectives were interested in promoting the notion of, of service. And, uh, but they came at it from different directions. And uh, some people, uh, what we discovered was that some people felt that service was a, um, a tool uh, to achieve upward economic mobility. Other people felt that service was the key toward doubling or tripling the, the post-secondary uh, completion rate of students in this country. And they were, they were very much working on different paths uh, because one's focus was on post-secondary completion, the other's focus was on uh, uh, upward economic mobility, uh, and they were sort of two distinct groups of people. But when we were able to create space where they could come together, and talk about uh, why they were working on those issues, what tools that identified that moved the needle, how they felt they could make a difference. What they discovered was quite surprisingly that, that while everybody might think that they were different funders funding different issues, they were actually working in concert and together on something, and it actually turned into a shared project within the philanthropic community to find ways to promote more service uh, in the country with everybody bringing their own sort of interest and perspective to the table, but with a, a shared perspective around the importance of service for uh, changing the trajectory of people's lives. And again, I think that that was a, a, the kind of conversation um, that, that surprised people and a result that absolutely surprised people as well. That's great. I, th I think what I'm hearing is that when we are able to take the time to really look at underlying values and even our stories, that when people are able to connect at a deeper level, then it allows us to return and talk about what had looked more like an ideological or, or partisan view, whether that's political or, or something else, and people can kind of set aside their points of view and open up to each other. Uh, Amanda, is that a little bit of what your understanding has been in how you do this work? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, a lot of the work that I have done has really addressed the processes for greater civic engagement. I think that, um, I think certainly everyone on this call and probably most of the speakers in the American Citizens Summit would agree that the systems and processes we have in place for the public to engage at a greater level are largely broken or dysfunctional. And so I think one of the greatest examples of some of the work that I've done was when I was heading up an organization called Citizens in Charge that was dedicated to protecting the ballot initiative and referendum process, 
which in many cases, uh, you know, exists in about roughly about half the states at the state level, most on the west western part of our country. And typically what you hear about ballot measures and referendums is the highly polarized and politicized, you know, vote yes, vote no, vote up, vote down campaigns and the sound bites that go along with them. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that that is one process that while it might still need some reforms to become even more effective um, in a variety of different states, it is still a form for the public to express through their First Amendment rights. Um, and in, in the states that it exists, it's a constitutional right in the state's constitution to express what they would like to see happen with certain public policies at the state level. Um, and so what we ended up doing was building these massive coalitions throughout the country of people that were interested in protecting that right to put an issue on the ballot, no matter what your political perspective or party or ideology might look like. And so we had people coming together in almost every state in the country who had been for decades in some cases because um, those of you that live in states where there are ballot measures, you know that there are, there are often change agents or leaders that put something on the ballot year after year. And so they um, have their own community and their own uh, activists and advocates that they work with. So in many cases, we had people that had been political foes for years and years and years, always on the opposite ends of these issues, coming together and standing together at public press conferences and in strategic conversation talking about the fact that regardless of how this vote ends up going and what the citizens of our state decide when they vote, we need to protect this process and we need to make sure that it um, can become better and more rigorous and there's accountability and there's transparency related to this process. And so I think that another really important element during our uh, particularly, as, as uh, you know, Jim just said, it's it's really an information revolution, the time period that we're in. So with so much access to information, I think it's important that uh, we also look at the processes that are in place and ways to improve and reform those so that we can bring these transpartisan ideals and dynamics, you know, into the foreground for a broader constituency of Americans all over the country. Thank you, Amanda. And I think what we're hearing is that Transpartisan has a number of different dimensions. As Jim points out, it's a very useful analytical tool. It's an operational way of bringing people to the table. But ultimately, or maybe not ultimately, but it's, it's also very much bringing a new set of processes uh, in, into our political culture. And I know, Michael, in terms of bringing transpartisan coalitions together, which you've done a lot of in D.C., that's much of the direction from which you've worked. Um, how might you add to that and maybe give us an example or two of some of the coalitions that you've worked with? Certainly, and Chris and Amanda did a great job talking about shared values and human connection and such. And one process that actually quite a few of us on this call have uh, done over the past uh, half dozen years, um, actually decade now, are transpartisan retreats. And what we do is we find 20, 25, maybe 30 leaders across the political spectrum on, on a particular issue set, and we bring them out of D.C. 95% of the retreats that we've done have been outside of D.C., mostly in a beautiful, quiet setting, professionally facilitated. You know, we usually use Mark Gerzon from Mediators Foundation or Bill Urey from Harvard. Um, and it's amazing to see when you bring disparate people together, 
most of whom had very little contact with one another except for their tribal contact. You know, I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, I'm a libertarian, I'm a Democrat, I'm, I'm a Green, but very little cross-partisan interaction. And you take them in a setting outside of D.C., kind of their defense mechanisms drop slightly because it's such a beautiful setting, a relaxed setting. And when you have amazing facilitators who are able to walk people through various processes which allow them to get to know one another, not as characters on TV, because we actually have a lot of people who do spend time on Fox or MSNBC, but you know, as real people who have certain values that are expressed you know, in their political positions or their policy positions, and you find out that they're not knuckle-draggers or they don't hate America or they don't hate a particular group of people, but they actually have a perspective that they care about and, and they express it in a certain way, uh, it kind of humanizes one another. And you're like, wow, I, don't, I might disagree with your ends that you seek or your means to your ends, but I can see that you are a human being just like me. You care about a certain set of issues and you, you have a different way of you know, attaining your goals than I do, but let's have a conversation. And those conversations occur at our retreats and it's great because not only you know, do you have 20 to 25 to 30 people who are kind of humanized amongst each other, but you also, in those discussions, find area, a lot of areas of common ground. And as I said at the very beginning, you know, we have kind of politically, politically conditioned minds. And in these settings, um, the, the your conditioning kind of relaxes a little bit. And because you're kind of humanizing the people around you, you know, not only do you get to know them as a person, but you can start understanding their worldviews, their perspectives. And it doesn't mean you change yours, but because you've loosened up your conditioned mind enough that you can kind of understand where they're coming from. And that creates space, as I said earlier, uh, for both new ideas to emerge and new connections and relationships to be developed. And that's just one among many processes. You know, Amanda talked about a few that we find very helpful in a transpartisan space to create campaigns, launch campaigns, and hopefully change the dynamics over you know the public policy over time. Thank you, Michael. What what I'm hearing these are great examples that each of you are bringing to the table, whether it's within an organization on a retreat, uh, trying to get a ballot initiative passed, uh, even Jim, as you work as an attorney in a different way. How do you all see that we might be able to take this meme or enterprise more broadly into the American public? At one level, people have said we've lost the public square. We've lost a way for democracy to sit down. How can we do this with ordinary citizens where they live, not necessarily only in special settings? And can I, can I uh, John, can I add to a layer to that, which is, and, and, and what is the relationship to um, uh, whatever it is that, that people think that we can do to the traditional world of politics and elections and campaigns? Is this, is this in the end about um, uh, uh, working around traditional uh, politics and the traditional political process in this country? Is it about reforming or transforming the political process in this country, but I'd be curious about uh, what people think about the relationship is between this work and the, the traditional way that we elect our leaders and, and uh, set policy in this country. Let me, uh, let me uh, respond to what Chris said, um, and, uh, and, and first of all, by saying that I think Amanda's point that 
there's a, a, a process part, a procedure part to the transpartisan approach uh, is really crucial because in many ways it is primarily a procedural approach. It's the argument of getting all of the uh, matters that are involved in a particular issue uh, present in however that issue is being addressed or decided. Um, and then I want to take a slightly uh, different view than has been said so far and make the argument that um, our current political system is in fact not broken. Um, what I think we're saying is that um, these institutions that were that were created in the you know basically in the 18th century um, have uh, the, the the principles that they were defending in the 18th century are still the hold the principles that are held onto in the country, but the institutions themselves have to now um, uh, grow. There, there's a great Jefferson quote on the uh, Jefferson Memorial here about how. Um, the, the processes that the society uses have to change just the way your clothing has to change. He says you wouldn't, uh, as an adult, you wouldn't wear the same coat you wore as a boy. And uh, basically what we're doing is um, a, a retailoring of the coat that we're wearing as, a, as maybe adolescents or maybe adults, but the, but the system that's created to do that is working pretty well. So I really think that um, thinking about John's question and then Chris's um, enhancement to it, that really it's a both and. And I think that just from the uh, people on this panel, you can hear that we are all working on this or contributing to this transpartisan dynamic in a different way from a different angle. And so I think just uh, the same would be true for all of the listeners uh, of the American Citizen Summit, that it's a both end, where some of you may be working or supporting uh, organizations or initiatives or projects that are trying to address a transformation of the current process that we, processes that we have and the current system that we're in. And some of you may be working in your communities and might identify very much with the humanizing aspects that many of us have talked about. And I wanted to offer, um, I believe that it's also going to be posted in a blog on the Shift Network site, but I had a um, five-step process that um, I recommend to folks when they find out about transpartisanship and this field of work and have an interest in doing something right away but aren't necessarily connected to an organization or an institution or don't have time to add um, you know, a new role necessarily to their lives but really want to make a difference in their own lives. And I think Michael uses a similar process with folks that he works with. But I wanted to offer five quick steps that if you're listening and you want to try this out in your own life, you might be able to uh, implement these right away. So the first one is one that may seem hard, but trust me, it's going to be wonderful once you go through this process. Try to take a complete media hiatus for a week. Uh, don't listen to TV news, talk radio, read blogs, newspapers. Just really try to take a break from all of the other messaging that's coming in. Um, you know, I like to encourage people to spend time getting outside, getting active, and uh, take that week off. And then in the second week, um, take a survey of the people in your lives and think about three people that you care a lot about but you know that you disagree or feel that you disagree with them on an issue, maybe even many issues, and just invite them to do something fun with you. You know, do something that you guys both enjoy. Maybe take a hike or go to a concert, enjoy a meal. Uh, don't talk about politics, but really do what so many of us talked about as part of our process. Just get to know each other a little bit better and enjoy each other's company. 
And then in that third week, um, take a new look at what your media diet could be. Uh, consume news from media outlets that you know you would probably tend to disagree with, but your mind is going to have a little bit more openness and some space there. And do your best to just listen or read with an open mind and try not to focus on the reacting, just consuming that information. And in that fourth week, go back to those three people that you had that, that fun activity with and ask them if you might be able to have a conversation with them to help you understand where they stand on that particular issue and where you think you might have a disagreement. Just spend about 20 or 30 minutes you know, curiously asking them questions and try to hold back on um, judgment of that and just be open to hearing and listening to them and getting a feel for what their life experience is that has informed that perspective. So really the goal there is to listen to understand. And then in that final week, um, try to create a new sustainable media diet for yourself, you know, one that might combine some of those outlets you were originally listening to, um, maybe incorporate some new ones that you might have gotten in that um, alternate week or from a friend that, that they trust when you went through those conversations. And when you read the news, look for that common ground across those platforms, even if it's tiny, because it's oftentimes that, you know, one-tenth of one percentage of alignment that is able to make a really, really big difference in our communities and in our country. Amanda, that's great. Uh, Michael, I know you've been thinking about this as well, and Amanda alluded to that. Anything you would add to what she just had to say? Well, no, she did a fantastic job. Stole my thunder, but I would like to respond to Chris. Um, uh, I would say both and and and. Both both and and. Both and and and. Uh, and what do I mean by the, the second and? Is that uh, and, and speaking with what Jim had said, you know, we uh, we're transitioning from industrial age to post-industrial age or information age, and a lot of the institutions which were useful at the time are no longer sustainable. Um, one of the things that is happening, and, and part of it's thanks to the technology and changes in cultures, is that these mediating institutions um, are no longer serving their purposes. So they have to evolve, like Jim said. But in many cases, people are bypassing some of these mediating institutions and trying to solve problems on the ground. And I think that's one of the, the strengths of the transparency movement is that people are recognizing in their communities that they can come together, bypass, or even work with, but they don't necessarily need to just grovel to particular mediating institutions and work to solve problems in their communities. And, you know, that's something I think is really, really important for us to recognize and support while also helping these mediating institutions transition and evolve to be more effective and supportive of what we need uh, as, as a people. Um, Chris, I'm going to go back over to you, but I just want to add two things. One, what Amanda said, there's a wonderful group that we know about for our listeners, which is Living Room Conversations and at livingroomconversations.org. There are a wonderful set of guidelines about how to talk with and listen to people you disagree with. And then again, um, we, a number of us, are part of a, of a network, an alliance called the Bridge Alliance, which can be found at bridgealliance.us, which re represents a number of the organizations doing this kind of transpartisan process work that a number of listeners might also want to know about. Uh, Chris, do you want to continue on, and then we'll go back to Jim? Well, I, I guess uh, I appreciated everybody's perspective. Um, my sense of it is is that is that there isn't 
much room for this kind of conversation within our traditional politics. And I also I also think that within the political reform community, that the folks that are trying to, uh, whatever the right word is, fix or resuscitate or revive uh, or renew our democratic practice in this country are having a much more of a structural conversation about sort of rules. Um, uh, how do you register voters? How do you set up elections? How do people actually vote? How do we organize primaries? And that the reform community, I think, in general is is probably on a, a, a different tack. But I, I, am, I am just intrigued by the question of whether or not these are two separate conversations or if there is any level of overlap in the Venn diagram. So I'll well, just, Chris, let me come back to you and ask you a question. As I've been looking at this, it seems to me that at one level we could say, who's out there who really wants to collaborate and cooperate and work things out together in whatever form that takes? And who really doesn't? Who wants to win? Who wants to be right? Do you see that as relevant to how you're looking at this? And, and Jim, then I'll ask you to respond as well. I, absolutely. I mean, and I think that the, the reason that we see more shared value solutions emerging at the local level is that, you know, people live together, they're neighbors, they're part of the same community. There's, they, don't, they don't sense that there is a, a partisan aspect to uh, crime reduction or snow removal, uh, and so it's easier for people to do. I, I personally, I actually think that um, uh, a big part of the problem is is structural in our political process, and that um, uh, that uh, what people refer to as dysfunction in politics is actually the system working exactly like it's been designed to work. Um, you know, uh, uh, when Harry Reid was running the United States Senate, every bill that he allowed to, to go to the floor for a vote had been fully politically vetted so that uh, people could either take credit for voting for it or run attack ads against somebody for voting against it. Um, and that's how that system has been designed. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in systems change, not behavioral change. Um, John, I told you the joke before that Bill Bradley says that former United States Senator Bill Bradley, says that the cry of the reformers 100 years ago was to throw the bums out. Uh, and uh, Senator Bradley says that if that was your motto today, the only thing that would get you would be new bums, because, in fact, the system uh, dictates the way people respond. And so uh, it's, it's uh, for me, just an interesting question, and, uh, um, and, I, and I do view them, at least in, in my experience, as, as being two different conversations on different paths. Thanks. Uh, Jim, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes because we're winding down and we'll have a few final questions. Well, well, politically, uh, what I was saying uh, is that uh, this quote on the Jefferson Memorial about uh, not wearing the coat of a boy when I'm an adult uh, is actually addressing our current situation. I believe really that our institutions are working pretty well for the way they were designed in the uh, 19th, 18th and 19th century. And uh, they're, they're, they're presenting us with um, uh, the, the values that we need to move forward with, um, just as they have in the past. And the important thing to understand uh, right now politically, I think, is that uh, uh, you know, from the standpoint of voters, 
Uh, right now, there are more people who are registered uh, other than Democrats or Republicans. Uh, and if you include the people uh, who do not register at all and who do not vote at all, there are more people not participating in our Republican-Democratic bifurcation than there are participating in it. So that it's very important to understand that part of the task is how do we create spaces for the institutions that we live with to include this larger group. And I believe that's part of what we're seeing with uh, Sanders and Trump. Uh, and uh, in that instance, that, that framework, I would say the institutions are working reasonably well. Uh, if we go back and look at uh, the way the country was organized, uh, de Tocqueville in 1831 pointed out that we work at a local level in gazillions of uh, uh, privately organized individual groups to address local problems. That's one of the things that was built into the process when these institutions were created. Uh, we've managed to get through, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the difficult uh, structured governments that we've had all along. When the Civil War started, the chaplain of the, uh, of the, of the House asked for, prayed for the House to have more brains, more brains. Uh, and the throw the bums out idea has been one that's been continuous throughout the entire American history. Uh, what we have now, though, is that the people who are wanting to express more and more of their own essential selves and their own uh, beings and their own way of doing things have tools available through the information revolution that they've never had before. So things are being heard and heard much more rapidly and much more loudly that have probably always been around but have not been able to get through the processes of communications. So that what we're getting is a, uh, actually, it seems to me what we're involved in here is growing pains. We are actually getting, uh, we're actually getting better at what we were set out to do, and we sh I think we can look upon our situation as being an optimistic and hopeful one, and I think that the, uh, the notion of the two conversations that may be underway, um, uh, when integrated, and we try to use that matrix, Lori and I, to talk about integrated, when we integrate those, the pieces of those two conversations, we come up with an objective debate, which is the one where the reformers and the people in argue about the structure extremely important, very important. And then we have the subjective debate where there are people who are arguing about the values. Now, it turns out that probably every individual is on all sides of all those issues uh, from time to time. And creating a way in which everything can be heard and all creativity can be done from all those different perspectives allows us to come up with ways of addressing our contemporary world that none of them individually would have thought of. That's the value to me of transpartisan. Uh, a group that involves a, a the larger community uh, and all of the different deeply held values is much more likely to come up with a resolution that works than any one of the people involved, groups or sets in, the, in that framework will, will do on its own. This conversation has been really great. I've learned a lot, and uh, I hope you all listening have learned a lot as well. I now just want to take a few minutes and ask our panelists if there's anything you want to say. This is self-promotion time for an upcoming workshop, event, a new program, a book, a blog, etc. Um, that you'd like our listeners to know about. Uh, Michael, let me start with you. Um, thanks, John. The, the only thing I could self-promote, I guess, is I do have a podcast, um, australankradio.com. O-S-T-R-O-L-E-N-K, radio.com. And uh, I'm very fortunate to interview a wide variety of people from a wide variety of topics, from intelligence and defense reform to psychedelic psychotherapy to alternative and complementary medicine uh, to transpartisanship, wide variety of fun topics. So I encourage folks to check that out. 
Thanks, Michael. Amanda, anything you'd like to uh, offer? First, I just wanted to say thank you to my fellow panelists. I thought this was a great conversation. And just to let folks know that if you'd like to learn more about the work that I'm currently doing, you can go to ctgassociates.com and click on the Get Involved button, and we can stay in touch that way. So thanks for tuning in. And Amanda, again, thank you for all the work you've done to make this and all these conversations possible. Uh, Chris, to you, please. Uh, I'll, I'll add my thanks to the organizers for this uh, conversation and, and the call and, and hope that the listeners found it uh, edifying and interesting and uh, would just urge people who are interested. I, I track politics and democracy and civic engagement and civic tech and philanthropy, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at, eight, at Gates5280, at Gates5280. Uh, Jim, to you, anything you'd like to uh, tell us about? Uh, Laurie and uh, Laurie Chickering and I, uh, who wrote uh, Voice of the People, the Transpartisan Imperative in American Life, uh, have begun doing notes on uh, Transpartisan as an introduction to um, the Transpartisan Review. And those can be found, uh, uh, we, first of all, we're, mailing, you know, we're emailing them out to anyone who wants them. Uh, and uh, we, um, are, uh, they are findable at the Compassionate Citizens Transpartisan Network. Uh, you'll have to Google that to find the uh, URL because I don't have it with me, but Compassionate Citizens Transpartisan Network, and um, we are uh, doing uh, short notes uh, between now and the inauguration of the president in uh, January 20th, and then we'll a full-blown journal will, will be available. Thank you, Jim, and the only thing I'd add to that is I think our listeners know that uh, you'll be able to get tapes or transcripts of this talk and all the talks on the American Citizen Summit at AmericanCitizenSummit.com forward slash upgrade. So if you want to share this with folks who haven't had a chance to listen to it, that's where you can go. Um, so just one last round of final thoughts. We'll ask each of you, uh, given what we've talked about, is there one thing you'd like to leave us all with today or a next step our listeners can take? to make changes in their own lives. Amanda, you've certainly offered some good ones, so let me start with you to see if there's anything else you'd like to add. I would just like to add that uh, being as open and curious as you can be in your community when problems arise, and you'll be surprised at the common ground that emerges and the solutions that can are, are possible. Uh, Jim? Well, I certainly would um, would underscore that. I think that's exactly right. Um, the capacity of people to uh, deal with problems is pretty wide, and if we create the space for them to come together from uh, various uh, orientations and attitudes and so on, they're amazingly inventive in what they come up with. Uh, I actually see the times go uh, going forward as being quite hopeful. Ho to the collective intelligence of the American people. Uh, Chris? Uh, I would just uh, echo one of the comments that was made earlier that I, I, I absolutely agree that that uh, social media and new forms of communication have fundamentally transformed uh, the social agenda that exists in this country and and that exists the, the relationship that exists between leaders and citizens. And I think that part of the awkwardness of the moment that we're in is that we're trying to figure out what that new social contact looks like. And Michael. Thanks, John. <clears throat> and thank you, everyone else. Uh, I'll throw on my, my uh, marriage and family therapy hat. Uh, Jim Turner mentioned trans 
personal psychology, which is my background. And I think we, as you mentioned, kind of having growing pains as we transition from industrial to post-industrial. And if we're smart, we can use the conflicts that are emerging intelligently to look at our collective shadows, do some really necessary inner and outer work, and reduce the transition costs. Um, I'm very optimistic about our future. And I'll leave you with one last thought. Um, there are no real enemies, only possible future allies. <laughs> well, thank you all. And my my closing remark here, as it's first of all, it's just been a pleasure and a gift to help moderate this conversation with three people that I've worked with for a number of years and with, with and for whom I have great respect. And just to keep that curiosity and open-mindedness and beginner's mind alive, both for the folks that we tend to dismiss, but even for some of our own internal dismissiveness, that I wouldn't go there and I wouldn't go here. I think it's going to take a lot of courage to embrace some of the opportunities and possibilities that are in front of us and that we all hope this transpartisan dynamic uh, will give us some opportunities that will help us move forward with our American democracy. So I think that's all for this panel. Many thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Thank you for joining us for the American Citizen Summit, brought to you by the Shift Network. To add this powerful collection of teachings to your personal library, visit AmericanCitizenSummit.com slash upgrade. To learn more about our global community of people evolving their consciousness and our culture, visit theshiftnetwork.com. Thank you again for joining us and for sharing this empowering wisdom with your friends and family.